a word of context, <clears throat> as we're just starting out in 1 Samuel, it'd be good for us to know, like, where in the Bible are we? What, what's happening in the storyline of the Bible? Well, 1 Samuel is, in many ways, a transitional book. It picks up at the time of the Judges, which, is, which was a, a chaotic time in the, uh, the history of Israel. There was no central leader among them at the time, but instead there was a, a series of interim leaders called Judges. And the book of Judges ends with this assessment of the time. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, it was chaos. Well, 1 Samuel shows the transition from that time of instability to a time of stability under a king. And Samuel, whom this book is about in the early part, is about um, God using Samuel to establish the kingship. And so that's where we are in the Bible, just so you have that as we read ahead. Last week, we saw Hannah, um, Samuel's mother, pleading with God for a son, and and vowing to give him back to God in service if she got a son. Well, this week we see her fulfilling that vow. And so let's get into it. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel 1. <clears throat> the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. Eli was a priest. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, we thank you for your word and how it shows us many wonderful things about you, and I pray that you would help us to see those wonderful things now and stir our hearts in devotion to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, several weeks ago, uh, Pastor Jonathan and I were looking at the preaching calendar, and when he saw that I had been assigned to this text, he mentioned to me that this passage is what influenced uh, him and Corey to name their firstborn son Samuel. And in many ways, this passage is, a, is about what it means to live up to the name Samuel. Hannah chooses the name Samuel, we learn in, in chapter 1, verse 20, because she, quote, asked for him from the Lord. Well, the verb there, asked for, is the Hebrew word sha'al, which in some forms can mean asked for. In others, it can mean lent, lented out, you know, lended out. Well, if you look down at 128, 
you see that little baby Samuel is involved in a play on words. Hannah says, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made or sha'ald to him. Therefore, I have lent or sha'ald him to the Lord. Samuel is one who is given and then given back, one asked for and then offered. And that movement is the movement of devotion, of receiving from God and then giving back to God. And so this morning, I want to talk about what it looks like to live up to the name Samuel and up to the example of his parents, to be wholly devoted, totally given over to God, down to your greatest treasures. And so I'm going to offer four truths about devotion that we see from this passage. Four truths about devotion, and I will say them as we go. The first one is this. Devotion builds the kingdom. Devotion builds the kingdom. And that is the the rule or the reign of God. Now, there are two ways to think of that sentence. Either our devotion builds the kingdom or God's devotion builds builds the kingdom. The temptation is strong here since we have such an incredible example of devotion in Hannah and Elkanah. The temptation is strong to just jump right into, well, how can we be devoted? And let's be devoted. And here's what our our devotion can do. But that's not actually where the devotion starts in this story. We have to ask, who is this God that Hannah and Elkanah are so willing to offer their son to? Who did they know him to be that they would have this level of devotion? The answer is, they knew him to be a God devoted to them. They know their family history. This is the God who made a promise to their ancestor, Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. And yet, Abraham's wife was barren, until God opened her womb. And this is the God who brought Israel, which is the nation from Abraham, the nation out of slavery in Egypt into the edge of the Red Sea, where the Egyptian army was closing in on them until God opened the Red Sea and brought them through dry land. And it's the God who drove little fledgling Israel's big established enemies out of the promised land so that he could give it to them as an inheritance, as he had promised. And so Hannah and Elkanah know their origin story. They know God's devotion to his people, that God has been building his kingdom against the impossible and according to his word. And here he is doing it again. We have another barren woman and another miracle child which alerts the reader, something big is happening here. And it is. In fact, in verse 23, when Elkanah says, only the Lord establishes word, that is Samuel's word, the ministry that Samuel's going to have, that phrase, establish his word, appears again in a very important chapter in the Bible, in 2 Samuel 7, where God makes a covenant with David that David's kingdom will have no end. Well, the the way that kingdom has no end is that Jesus is from the line of David and is the eternal king who lives and reigns forever. 
Samuel, little baby Samuel here, is the one who puts David on that throne in the first place. And so Hannah and Elkanah don't know it yet, but God is building the eternal kingdom, and he's using their son in this story to do that. God is doing way more in the background than they could possibly know. It reminds me of this passage in a psalm that says, unless the Lord builds the house, the the builders labor in vain. We cannot build anything without God. There is no such thing as our devotion to God without God first being devoted to us. Listen to this from Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, in other words, his devotion, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God did the impossible for us. We want to talk about being devoted, and how can we be devoted? Well, who can talk about devotion when you're dead? God has to make you alive first, and he does. And the passage goes on to say that we are his, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. The works we do, that God prepared beforehand, we don't dream those up. Those works are like Ikea furniture that God prepared in advance for us to do, and then we do them imperfectly, and we stumble through it. That is what our devotion is to God. It is us walking into what He has set up for us to do because He's given us life, and He's created good works for us to do. And so whose devotion, in the end, builds the kingdom? We start with good news right away. It's not yours. It's God's devotion that builds the kingdom. It's devotion for you and through you. And this is very good because if it were up to us, we would be in a bad position because we are frail and imperfectly devoted people. Amen? And so this brings me to my next point about devotion. It's hard to do. Devotion is stirred in partnership. That's the next point. Devotion is stirred in partnership. And by that, I mean it helps to have a companion in devotionship or partnership in devotion. And so I want to take a moment to talk about that, and particularly in the context of the home. Because here in Elkanah and Hannah, we have um, a remarkable picture of a godly marriage, where husband and wife are of one accord and are on mission. And actually, we don't see very many examples of that in the scriptures, and so it's good for us to take note. And what do we see in their marriage? Well, the way it comes through in the translation, you might think that Elkanah is almost irritated at Hannah, the way that he says it in verse 23. He says, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. It almost seems like they may be at odds about this decision. But that is, is almost certainly not the case. For one, we read that Elkanah, uh, we learn from the details of verse 21 that he is a righteous man. That's what these details are communicating. Look at verse 21. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. This is telling us something about Elkanah, that he is a man who leads his family in godliness, that he is sacrificial. That he is consistent. He's doing this yearly. And he is 
extra, extra devoted to the Lord because he is paying a vow, and that is something beyond what the law requires. Vows are optional, acts of devotion that God's people are free to do or not to do. And so we see that Elkanah is one who has made a vow and is going to fulfill it. And, <clears throat> and so, excuse me, and we can see that he is a righteous man. <clears throat> Another reason, reason we know that he is not at odds with Hannah in her vow is that actually he could have vetoed her vow. The Torah, which is the law that they were living under, gave him that right as a husband to say, nope, not that vow. Instead, he honors his wife's vow. And so one commentator says that this act places him in a category with Abraham, who gave over his son Isaac. Well, it puts Hannah there too. Both father and mother deeply pined for this child, and both were of one accord to give him back to the Lord for service. The man is both leading his family spiritually and honoring and supporting his wife's initiative and devotion at personal cost. And Hannah is taking initiative while keeping in step with her husband. This is a wonderful picture of spiritual partnership that honors both male headship and female initiative. The man is not bullish, and the woman is not mousy, waiting to be told what to do. No, they are both running headlong toward God. And when they do that, and when we do that, we leave the land of competition, and we enter a far more wonderful well, competition land's not even wonderful. We enter a wonderful and a fruitful and a joyful land called partnership. And I know that there are many in this room that long for their marriage to look like that and grieve that it doesn't. Your marriage may instead be marked by bickering or keeping score, or trading tit for tat, or you know, this is environment of, of criticism and record keeping. But what if you were partners in devotion to God? What if you were working together as a team on mission? What if you were stirring each other on toward love and good deeds? That is the picture of marriage that we have here, and it's how God designed marriage to be. Marriage is sunk into the mud and distorted into something ugly and unenjoyable when it is made to serve you, when it is devoted to you, when it is about you. And when it's about you, that's when you're keeping records of wrong. It is lifted to the height when it is made to serve God and to picture the gospel. Now, some of you may be listening to me, an unmarried man, 116 days, and then I'll join you, telling you how to conduct your marriage, and you're, you may be thinking, man, you have no clue. <laughs> you have no clue the way my wife gets under my skin, or my husband makes me feel small, the behavior I have to endure, the constant criticism I live under, and you want me waltz into a spiritual partnership, I do not deny that there are many deep wounds in this room related to marriage. And even the best of marriages among us need reconciliation. 
and that reconciliation needs to happen before mission can really fully happen in any meaningful way, and that it's really hard. But I can tell you, not by my experience, because I don't have any yet, but by something way better, the authority of God's Word, that after prayer, the first movement toward reconciliation and mission is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And you can do that. You do not have to wait for your spouse to fix your eyes on Jesus and to imitate him. Here are some passages from Scripture, all of which you can do in his strength. When you are reviled, do not revile in return. Turn the other cheek. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And of course, Scripture calls men to love their wives like Christ loved the church and to give themselves up for her. Scripture teaches that godliness and deference are actually your best strategy toward a good marriage, that they are transformative, and that vengeance is destructive. In other words, withholding kindness from your spouse no matter how much they don't deserve it, withholding kindness will not work. It will not give you the marriage you want. It cannot give you the marriage you want. And if you wait until your spouse deserves your kindness, you will die waiting. And if Jesus waited until you deserved his kindness, you would have died waiting. you can take a step toward the kind of partnership that Hannah and Elkanah enjoy. Start small. Return a criticism with a kindness. See what happens next time your partner turns you down or puts you down. If instead of biting back, you, you say a silent prayer for your spouse. Or later, instead of getting back at them, you, you say a kind word, an affirming word. Lay down your pride. Love your wife. Respect your husband. Do what is in your power to do for a healthy marriage. And I want to be really clear here. Situations of abuse and abandonment and neglect are different. There is a a very different dynamic going on there. And if you are experiencing those things, please tell one of us pastors or elders, we want to help you. Kindness is always a good idea, but um, those sorts of situations are unique. And so um, I wanted to be clear about that. Well, I've been talking about partnership in marriage, but you may be a single person listening and asking, well, what about me? What does partnership look like uh, in the home when I live alone? That is a good question. I have a lot I would like to say about that, how singleness is not a problem, how the Bible actually calls singleness a good thing and marriage a good thing. They can both be good things at the same time. Uh, 
Singleness actually, the Bible says, is a help and not a hindrance to the kingdom and to devotion. So there's a lot to say there, but I want to say this. You may live alone, but you do not live your life alone. You have a big family right here. This is God's family, and you are a part of it. And if you sense an area in your life that is calling for greater devotion, but it would be a lot easier if you had someone else to help you, ask. Ask for it. We are God's family. We are partners. You have partnership here. I know of a young woman in her 30s, who, or her mid-30s, who wanted to uh, foster and adopt children, but she was waiting until she was married to do so, and eventually she thought, you know, I don't have to wait. I've got community that can help me right now. So she, like, gathered her community. She got people to pledge, you know, I'll buy diapers, and I'll do babysitting, and I'll help you build a bunk bed, and all these different things, and she is now an adopted mother and fostering another, and she is showing that, in fact, you can be devoted to the kingdom of God as a single person and doing hard things. And so, I would say, seek partnership. And I know the grief of singleness can be real, and I don't minimize that at all. But your life is not on hold until you're married. And your life is not over if you were married and are now not due to death or divorce. You can be devoted now in partnership with the church. Amen. Well, whether single or married, we are not to go, it, we're not to go it alone in devotion. Instead, we are to let our devotion be stirred in partnership, not only to multiply our joy and our effectiveness, but also because devotion can be hard. And companionship and partnership is a comfort and a help and so that brings me to my next point. So, so, so far, we've seen that devotion builds the kingdom, that devotion is stirred in partnership. And thirdly, devotion is costly. Devotion is costly. The gift that Hannah and Elkanah give is extremely costly, their own son. There's a song I know called Brothers, and it's a critique of war. And one of the, of the lines is, a few mother's sons will never be enough. Well, the lyric, the lyric there uses the language of mother's sons to convey the cost of a life. It could have just said people, could have just said bodies, but they said mother's sons because there's hardly anything more precious in the world than a son to a mother and a father or a daughter to a mother and a father. And so I want to talk about how devotion is costly. It was for Hannah, and it will be for us. This text doesn't say it outright, but Hannah probably weans Samuel when, she is about, when he is about three years old. We can gather that from a few places in the Old Testament. Well, there's something else that's three years old in this passage, and it is the bull that Hannah and Elkanah bring to be slaughtered. And together, these two details, I think, come, they come together to say Elkanah and Hannah are making two costly sacrifices. It's not just a bull. They are giving their own son into lifelong service of the Lord at Shiloh, away from where they live. He will not grow up around them. They are releasing him to the Lord. 
And this is actually what Christian parenting is. It is devoting your child to lifelong service to God. One commentator ties together the the meaning of Samuel's name and the role of parents in Christian nurture in this way. He writes, The very name of this child, Samuel, is a rebuke to those parents who never think of God in connection with their children, who never thank God for giving them, nor think of what he would like in their education and training. Many a parent has felt what a solemn thing it is to receive from God's hands an immortal creature. Do not treat lightly, O parents, the connection between God and your children. Cherish the thought that they are God's gift, God's heritage to you. And this last part is sobering. What a cruel thing it is to cut this early connection between them and God and send them drifting through the world like a ship with a forsaken rudder. If you are a Christian parent, you have a costly and difficult task before you to raise your children in the Lord, not only for the Lord's glory, but also for the comfort and the good of your child, to send your child into the world with a, like a ship without a forsaken rudder, but with a good rudder, an intact rudder. The basic premise of Christian parenting is that your child is not your own. Even admitting that is costly. You think about your child and you, if you're a mother, the child may have came, <laughs> came out of you or you adopted the child or and you bathed this child and you fed this child and you watched this child grow into its baby fat and all of these things. I mean, it is precious to you. But you are not raising children for your own keeping. Instead, you are sending them off into the world as arrows. You are raising, you're training little kingdom seekers who seek first the kingdom of God. And they might seek it first before you, before your family. They might seek it across the ocean and go far from you. In Proverbs, the wise father says to his young son, whatever you get, get wisdom. And this keys us into what, as parents, we're actually trying to instill in our children. Not wealth or success or reputation or comfort. Those, these things aren't bad, but we often desire them most for our children over wisdom. But we shouldn't. And the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And so I ask you, Another costly question as parents, are you willing to raise holy disruptors of the order of things? Children who live the true blessed life according to Jesus, who are poor in spirit, who are meek, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted for his name's sake. This is your calling, and it will make you look strange. It will cost you. And so if you're hearing this and you're thinking, oh, man, that's a lot. It is a lot. Obviously, none of us can do this on our own strength. This calling demands, first and foremost, prayer, the help of God. So that's the first thing. You, would, you pray, and you pray, and you pray for strength. 
But the next thing it demands is your own devotion as a parent, your own imitation of Christ. And just like with singleness earlier, there's so much I could say here, but I got to stick to just a couple, one thing. So I'm just going to offer you a phrase to, to guide you. And that phrase is this, rhythms and words. Your rhythms and your words. What do your rhythms and words reveal to your children about what you treasure? There's a fantastic missionary autobiography that you should all buy. It's by John Payton, J-A-T-O-N, a couple of people have asked already, where, uh, and he's a, he's a missionary in the 1800s, a Scottish missionary who ends up going to minister at, in cannibal tribes. But in the first part of the book, he is describing uh, his childhood home and the Christian nurture that he received there. And here in the passage I'm about to read you, he's describing the Sabbath, which as a parent, if you want one place to start with your rhythms and your words to help nurture your children in Christ, start with the Sabbath. It is the, the, the today, the Lord's day. It is the center of your life as God's people. Here's how he describes their Sabbaths. Oh, I can remember those happy Sabbath evenings. No blinds drawn and shutters up. A holy, happy, happy entirely human day for a Christian father and mother and children to spend. How my father would parade across and across our flat floor, telling over the substance of the day's sermons. How he would entice us to help him recall some idea or other, rewarding us when we got the length of taking notes and reading them over on our return. How he would turn the talk ever so naturally to some Bible story or some martyr reminiscence or some happy allusion to Pilgrim's Progress. And then it was quite a contest which of us would get reading aloud while all the rest listened. And Father added here and there a happy thought, illustration, or anecdote. Isn't that lovely? And it's also very lofty. <laughs> and I recognize that. Some of you are listening to this thinking, man, I can hardly get my family to church. <laughs> I, I've tried to get family devotions going and it's a struggle or maybe way worse. Maybe all you're thinking right now is your perceived failures as a parent or a really difficult situation that you have in the home and a child that is going wayward. And I do not condemn you. Parenting is an intense challenge. And I encourage you, keep going. I know many of you are raising your children in the Lord. Praise the Lord. Keep going. But perhaps this is falling on your ears and you're thinking, actually, yeah, I'm really not giving much attention to this at all. Where should I start? Well, you probably start a little smaller than what I just described to you from John Payton's father. Start with your own habits. You know, my, my mother did her devotions every morning while I was growing up. And I can picture her at the window seat. And I can picture it because it happened every morning all the time. I can picture her there with her you know, cloth flower Bible cover around her Bible and the steaming mug of coffee and the gray light coming in through the window and she's bowed in prayer and she's pouring over the scriptures, bringing her heart to the Lord, but also training little Matthew and little Dane and little Jessica in what was most important in this life. Your rhythms and your words. Your rhythms and your words around your children and your finances, and your time, and your vocation, and your friendships, whatever it is, 
your rhythms and your words around these things will reveal your devotion to Christ or lack thereof. And I do not say this to condemn you, but to alert you. Listen to your life. Listen to your life and see where God is calling for greater devotion and ask him for the strength to give it. Well, we've seen so far that devotion builds the kingdom. We've seen that devotion is stirred in partnership. And we've seen that devotion is costly. But devotion is not without joy. And that brings us to our last point, which is that devotion is rewarding. Devotion is rewarding. No doubt it was difficult for Hannah and Elkanah to give their son to the Lord. But listen to Hannah's joy after the fact. If you were to keep reading in the next chapter, she praises God saying, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. Hannah believed in something beyond herself, something that could return greater joy than anything in this world. She knew that her earthly devotions, even her greatest one, was in the end too small for her heart. Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Elsewhere, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That is a tough pill to swallow. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates it will keep it. This is the otherworldly logic of devotion, that in the end, what we give to God is not lost, but traded for something far better, eternal life, unending joy, great God-sized joy. Earlier, I described the atmosphere of Christian joy that John Payton's father cultivated in their home. And no doubt, they had to say no to many lesser joys to give their heart fully over to God. But was it a loss? In the end, was it a loss? Well, listen to the way Peyton describes his father's legacy. He sang sweet psalms beside the sick and prayed like the voice of God at their dying beds. He went cheerfully from farm to farm from cot to cot. And when he wearied on the moorland roads, he refreshed his soul by reciting aloud one of Erskine's sonnets or crooning to the birds one of David's psalms. His happy partner, Wee Jen, died in 1865, and he himself in 1868, having reached his 77th year, an altogether beautiful and noble episode of human existence having been enacted. And in this world, or in any world, all their, all their children will rise up at mention of their names and call them blessed. Does this sound like a man without joy? Does this sound, sound like a man who lost out on life? Not to me. Sounds like a wise man who knew his greatest treasure and pursued it. When we give our whole lives to God, we do not 
give away joy. We get joy. And that is because in God's good kindness and grace, He made His glory and our joy to work in tandem. He's that good. Devotion is an investment that offers the greatest return, God-sized joy in God's glory. Well, you may be hearing all of this and thinking, that sounds really nice. I would love to be that devoted. If I could just snap my fingers and do it, let's go. But it's just not in me. I have tried and failed over and over and over and over again to be this way. I can hardly read my Bible. I can hardly go to church, let alone pine after the Lord like these super Christians. Well, be at peace. Their devotion did not come from them. Yours will not either come from you. All devotion is a response to God's devotion to you. Scripture says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. How do you know God is devoted to you? He gave you His Son. Abraham was not the last to offer his son. Hannah was not the last to offer her only son. God himself has made the great, greatest sacrifice by offering his only son, the perfect and the holy one, for the salvation of undevoted people like you and me. Jesus is the true and better Samuel. The son given by God as a pledge of his love for you and devotion to you, that you might be saved and devoted to him for his glory. And so what is our task? What do we do with this? First, we know our true and better Samuel. Jesus Christ, whom God offered for you. Surely a God this loving, this wonderful, this unendingly devoted to you is worthy of our devotion. He will help us in it. And so second, be zealous. Give everything. He is worthy and he is full of joy. And he will not forsake you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of devotion that we see here and that we see um, in fullness in Jesus Christ, who ascended the cross for us and died for us that we might live through him. This is love. This is devotion. Help us, God, to be inspired, to receive devotion, and then to return it to you with joy for your glory. And we thank you that those two things run in tandem. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.